Wow, I can't see any of you because there's two blinding lights in my face, but I see shadows. And it is really good to see this many shadows out there, guys. Welcome to Salt Company. My name is Ryan Hamby. Uh, I get to lead this ministry of Veritas Church. And I got to tell you guys, we just got to stop and just be so thankful for what's going on right now. In the craziest year of any of our short lives, Five months ago, we were sitting there and just dreaming about this day actually happening. That students from the University of Iowa come together again in community and be sitting under the word of God and hearing the gospel wash over their souls. I don't know if you know this, guys, but tonight, because we are preaching the word, we are expecting God himself to show up and to save lost people. His word tonight is incredibly convicting. And it is incredibly life-giving. Like Mikey said earlier, this is what we do every week. We gather, we sing as loud as we can, even if it's into a piece of cloth, and we open the word of God because there and there alone are the words to life. Life now and life forevermore. So this is a lot of your uh, first impression with Salt Company. That's hilarious, by the way. We're used to doing our kickoff out at Hubbard Park, and uh, it's a good time, but man, let's just be thankful for tonight. Let's enjoy this. This is a gift from God. What a perfect night. So it's rained the last like five years on kickoff. What a perfect night. God's got this. I don't know if you guys know this. You have been prayed for like never before. Like we've used to pray for you guys a little bit, but man, this season, we have been praying for you guys like, like crazy. And to all you student leaders out there who have just been going after it, just desperate for, for people to hear the gospel, well done. Look around. The gospel is going to be preached. And so first impressions are awful. They're terrible. We're going to do our best job. I'll do my best job of first impression. I, like, I don't, I'm like not afraid to speak to people, but for some reason first impressions, especially with like, you know, parents and stuff, is always terrifying to me. I think I remember once when I was, Seeing a girl doesn't matter. Back earlier in college, and it was like, uh, she like, hey, Ryan, how you doing? And the dad asked me, hey, son, do you have a job? And I was like, I don't know why I went here immediately, but I was like, uh, yes, sir, I make $500 a month, sir. And he's like, cool, man, I didn't ask you that. I'm like, yeah, sorry, sorry, sir. And it was like, that relationship didn't go so well. But this first impression, guys, your first impression of us, of Salt Company, might be something like this. You met a leader who handed you an invitation or you heard about Salt Company while you were still in high school, or even wanting to check out Salt Company for a few years now and you're finally here, and you have this idea of the Salt Company student. You have a caricature of the Salt Company student. And maybe you think that the average Salt Company student is an absolute saint. Maybe you think, and even the people you wrote over here with, that they are some kind of superhero, professional Christian who never says a bad word, who always pays their rent on time, who doesn't do anything wrong at all, is perfectly social distanced. Like that's your idea of what the salt comes to. is like this super church figure that you're like, man, they must do life really, really well. And you might even look on here and see me on stage. You see a band on stage. Other people get on stage like, oh, that's a professional Christian. You get to speak into a microphone about God. You probably have all your stuff together. Well, I'm going to say, let's throw whatever idea, whatever ideal first impression you have, let's just throw it out the window because you are dead wrong. 
the good news about tonight, about the community that you are in right now, is that we're just like you. I, I hope that nobody here is acting like we have our act together. That we have all of our I's dotted and T's crossed. That we are, uh, you know, experts at following Jesus by any stretch. No, this is not the religious elite, guys. What you are stepping into right now, who we are, is just a bunch of normal people, broken, confused, still have doubts, still have questions, still have anger, still have sin. But we have been met by the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And he has us on a journey that he promises us he is going to take us home one day. And he is worth giving every single thing we have for. And so don't get the wrong impression. We are not perfect. But I hope that we can be a people who are radically obsessed with the Jesus because he has loved us like crazy. And so tonight we're going to open the word. The word dictates kind of the big idea of our messages, right? We don't really dictate what we want to talk about and then try and find a Bible passage to support that. But we open up the word and we take our ideas from that. We want God to speak to us, not just the ideas of man. And tonight is a very straightforward and simple word from the Lord. As we open up to Luke 18, this is the question that is begged of us in this text. The age-old question that you maybe have heard before, maybe somebody scared you with it as a kid in church, but I'm going to ask it nonetheless. This is what it is. When you stand before God one day, and you will, what will you say? When it's time for you and I to stand before God, what is it that we are going to say to him? I tried to get creative with this, I promise. I tried to make it a little more catchy than that. I tried to, you know, make it a little more colorful, colorful but I finally gave up, guys. Because the truth is, it's time to start preaching at Salt Company like this is our last Salt Company every single week. With all the amount of curveballs this world is throwing at us, tonight we are going there. We're going big, and we're going to ask hard questions like this. We don't know what the future holds, but we do know that God has every single person here for a reason. I don't think I feel the need to impress anybody here. I don't think anybody wants that, but I do need to ask this hard question. And I want you to know something tonight, that if you don't know the answer to if you were to meet your God tonight, what would you say? Like, if you don't have a confident answer to that, I want you to know it's okay. We're not, like, keeping score, like you have homework throughout SALT for the entire year, we're, like, keeping your grades or anything. No. But this is a question that is important enough for us to ponder deeply, isn't it? And I want to encourage you that whether you know how to answer that question tonight or not, whether you're confident in your answer or not, God is going to meet us tonight. And he is going to tell us what our answer should be. And so I want you to be hopeful. I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be brave tonight. I don't want there to be a spirit of fear in the air, but a spirit of unity and courage. That is the spirit that we have received. There's really good news for us tonight. It's that God is here. And he is going to help us answer this question. And so if you guys would, open up your Bibles to Luke 18. Verses 9 through 14. So, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, it's one of the Gospels. And we're going to come across a story that Jesus is telling his people. He's looking out at a crowd like this, 
and he has a story. It's called a parable. Right? It's like a story with a hidden meaning that's supposed to take a different angle to let the truth cut home on those who are hearing it. Let me read the first verse, just Luke 18, verse 9. This is what it says. He, Jesus, told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they looked down on everyone else. Let me read that again. It's short. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they looked down on everyone else. What we stumble in here is pretty normal in the life of Jesus, right? He's out sharing all these stories. He's teaching to crowds. He's using this story to get his point across. But what's unique about this particular teaching, guys, is his target audience. Like, what is it? Look, he says, it was those who trusted in themselves. Jesus isn't looking into the crowd, signaling out the drunkard tonight. Right? He's not looking out to the crowd, to the ones with the most grotesque sins, the most blatantly flagrant life on display in the crowd. But he targets those in the crowd who thought themselves righteous in themselves. Okay, what's that churchy word righteous mean? You guys have probably heard that before. It's like your rightness before God. Like you know what righteous means. It means that when you stand before God one day, he will approve of you. It means you are right, you are whole, that God looks at you and he loves what he sees. These people trusted in themselves that that was them. And Jesus had something to tell them. The problem that Jesus is wanting to get to with these people who saw that in themselves they were righteous was this. It was that this so-called righteousness had an adverse effect. This so-called righteousness how these people looked in the mirror and saw in themselves caused them to do something that didn't seem very righteous. It caused them to look down on everyone else. It seems kind of wrong that if we acted in a way God approved of, then I'm guessing he doesn't want me to scoff and scorn at those I see as less than or below me. We know what this is like, though. This actually isn't anything new. It's not like these people were really, really weird that Jesus is talking like the five people on earth who think they're self-righteous. This is not a foreign concept to us in Iowa City in 2020. What happens when your rightness is challenged? What happens when what you believe to be true is fought against? Have you guys heard of masks before? How many arguments have we gotten into about these things? How many sleepless nights have we just stayed up late talking about what is constitutional, what is right, what people can and can't tell me to do, how you can love people or you can't love people, and there's no in-between. And people challenge us. And it hurts. And we start to do something. We disagree. We group up with people who agree with us. And then we look at people who are different, have different opinions, and can't seem to understand what we understand, and we say we are better than them. We might not say it explicitly, but we think it. And I've got to be honest with you guys, this has been one of the weirdest, most brutal weeks of sermon prep I've ever had in my life. Because this is talking to me. It's talking to me. I'm looking at this stuff, and I'm getting so worked up over everything the world is throwing at me. 
that I find myself, I'll say it, hating other people. Not understanding where they're coming from. Thinking that if they just thought like I thought, everything would be better. It would be so much more peace in the world. So much more unity if everybody could just be like me. And this text has ripped me apart and exposed my soul bare. Like anyone else, I have my opinions, my rightness. But what does that end up doing? It isolates us. It divides us. When I claim that my righteousness is in my own ideas, my own works, it does nothing but hurt this community and this world. In a world that's desperate for unity, we find some when we look down on others, but it's not the way of Jesus. We might be able to find political camps and ideologies that make us feel better while we point and look down on others, but this is not the way of Jesus. Jesus is setting his sights right on the self-righteous tonight. Those who look at their resume, at their accomplishments, and let that be the peace that they feel when they hit their head on the pillow at night. No. This is not the way of Jesus. He has a better way, and he's actually going to tell us. Let's read into this story, verses 10 through 13. It says this. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven. But he kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Okay, this is a fascinating story. And you might not see it yet, but let's, let's, uh, let's figure this out here. This is really, really good. We have two characters here. Okay, we have a Pharisee and we have a tax collector. Now, Jesus' original audience would have very, very strong feelings and emotions when he just said these words. Okay, who is this Pharisee? What are the people hearing this story thinking about the Pharisee before he even gives his resume? They're thinking about something like this, the religious elite. Someone who has been so good to God and God has been so good to them. A law-abiding citizen. Who could ever find fault with a man like this? A faithful man. This guy's devoted his whole life to the ways of God. Good job. And even now, he's an overachiever. Pharisees do even more than you ask of them. Accurate or not, this is a side, accurate or not, I always think of like Angela from the office as a Pharisee. She is the modern day Pharisee. She thinks she knows what's right and she looks down on other people for it. She wears her religion on her sleeve and as Jesus describes his character, I don't think the crowd really was surprised. Of course he's going to go to the temple and pray. This is his God. That is so Pharisee of him. Cool. Of course, he's genuinely thankful to God for all of his blessings. That's what Pharisees do. Jesus, we get it. Of course, he does these things that other people in the church don't even do. You go, Pharisee. And of course, he looks across the room at this other person and says, I'm not like him. Who is the him? Who is the other character in this story? Who is the Pharisee thanking God that he is not like? It's the tax collector. If Jesus' audience had a strong uh, reaction to the Pharisee, this one puts that reaction to shame. When Jesus brings up the tax collector, what these people are thinking about was the lowest of the low. People who would betray their own for a quick buck. 
would rip off fellow Jews and family members trying to be buddy-buddy with the Roman soldiers. The crowd is sure to know the Pharisee is the hero of Jesus' story before Jesus even finishes his story. And they know beyond a shadow of a doubt this tax collector is the villain. Surely Jesus is telling us to be more like the Pharisee. The world is broken. Easy solution. Do better. Be better. But I want us to be good readers here. Even before we get to the end of the story, let's be good readers. What we have heard so far is their resumes, what they bring to the table, the list of accolades that they bring. The Pharisee lays out all of his goodness and righteousness. The tax collector lays out everything he has, which is good, which ironically, if you couldn't tell, is nothing. He has nothing to bring into the temple of God. But do you notice anything else about the parable that we just read so far? Do you notice anything else? What volumes do these characters' postures What volume does their body language play in telling us about who they are? We see the Pharisee standing. He's praying about himself. He's looking across the room horizontally to find affirmation. And what about the tax collector? What does his prayer look like? He's almost hiding in shame, isn't he? He knows his life is a mess and it looks like it. He beats his chest. He cries out in anguish. He can hardly make it into the house of God. Why? Is it because he's looking at the Pharisee and he's like ashamed to be next to him? Like he's embarrassed by the Pharisee? No. I don't think that's what's happening here at all. Where the Pharisee might be looking over his shoulder and pointing at the tax collector saying, thank God I'm not like that guy. The tax collector doesn't even have the time or the energy or the attention to give the Pharisee. No, the tax collector is having a vertical conversation with God while the Pharisee is concerned with the horizontal comparison. You see, the Pharisee's problem is that all of his goodness is simply in relation to being better, okay? All of his righteousness, all of his goodness is just about being better, being better than others, better than his previous self, better than this tax collector sinner. And this makes sense, doesn't it? Like comparison feels good sometimes, especially when it's distorted. One of my favorite, I love wrestling my nephews. I love it. The oldest one is like 11. And so I just beat the tar out of them. It's great. It makes me feel so stinking good. But I tell you what, if I stepped up and squared up with any average 26-year-old dude like myself, it probably wouldn't go that well. Right? Like we love comparing ourselves to people we know we can beat. We know we are better than. We know that will boost our self-esteem and fill us with hot air. When the Pharisee comes before the God of the universe, the creator God, the one he knows so much about and he should be reverently in awe of, he has nothing to say but this. At least I'm better than this other guy. My good, my good outweighs my bad. Just look at my resume. What a miserable, miserable vision for your life that would be. Salt Company, go and be better than the rest of the university. Just be better. Just see them doing bad things and just do a better job. That is a miserable vision and not a life worth living. But when we see the tax collector come before this same God, he has fewer words, doesn't he? 
He says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he's beating his chest. I can only imagine just to get the words out because he knows he doesn't deserve to even have God listen to him. Which character do you align more with tonight? I already told you that I definitely see myself in this Pharisee. That everything the world throws at me in our efforts to unite, I take and I make them divisive. I have a bad habit of grouping up with people I find that are similar to me and looking down on others. But which one are you tonight? Imagine the end. Imagine the sky peels back, you breathe your last, and you are standing before this God, this holy God, this perfect God. What do you plan on saying to him? You going to give him a piece of your mind? <laughs> you going to ask him really specific things that didn't make any sense? More specifically, what if this God asks you, why should I let you into my perfect kingdom? Why should I let you live forever in peace and joy with me? I'm perfect. I'm holy after all. I don't think he's going to say it like that, but you get the idea. What is your answer going to be? Is it going to be something as simple as, well, God, I tried to follow the rules very, very well. I was better than other people. You know what? Actually, I think the good that I did outweighed the bad. I went to church when my parents didn't even make me. Look at me. Thursday night going to church. I'm not in the bars. What do you know, God? Cool. I didn't have to do this with my college career. Look at me, God. I'm even a salt leader. I am even on stage at salt. Will you have your impressive list of accomplishments or will you have one word like the tax collector, mercy? What Jesus' audience think, what this world tells you is that you better be like this Pharisee or else. Your good better outweigh your bad. Whatever you need to do to get ahead in this life, do it. And so we measure up to one another. We step on one another and we climb the ladder of life where each rung is made by another person to step on. We climb the, rank, the ranks of seeming favor with God and with man and we feel great about it. But this is the problem. This is not the way that Jesus works. Praise God. Now friends, tonight we need to feel the shock that the audience of Jesus' day felt when they heard this. Let me finish the story by reading verse 14. It says this. Well, I'll read verse 13 first again. I like it. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this is Jesus talking, I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other. This one went down to his house justified rather than the other because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. What's shocking about this story, think about it, what's shocking about this story is that the man who brings everything to the table for God leaves with absolutely nothing. And the man who brings nothing but his sin leaves with everything. 
How is this possible? What on earth is Jesus trying to tell us tonight? This is what Jesus is trying to tell us tonight. Contrary to what we have heard before, it is not your goodness that qualifies you for the kingdom of God and living forever with him. It is not your goodness. Hear this very clearly. It is not your goodness and your deeds and your rule following and your better than thou art attitude that qualifies you to live forever in the kingdom of God. It's your sin. It's your forgiven sin that qualifies you to live with God and nothing else. That's what Jesus is trying to tell us tonight. It's your forgiven sin that qualifies you to be righteous, right with God, justified, where God sees you just as if you had never sinned. The only prerequisite to being a Christian is to bring your sin. I think that's all of us. That's good. That's good news. What Jesus is pointing to here is the staple of his upside-down kingdom, guys. Those storing up treasures for themselves here, including the righteous, leave this world and this life with nothing. And those who have Jesus have absolutely everything, not only now in this life, but forever. What does it mean to have Jesus? If this is what you need to walk away with tonight, this is what you need to know. Tell me how to have Jesus. Jesus did not come to give a Sunday school lesson on how to be a better person. He didn't come to give bad people rules so they would become slightly better people. Jesus did not come to die an unnecessary death, but because he had to. As he hung horrifically on the cross, for those of us who really need it, which is all of us. The irony of Jesus' story here is that the Pharisee is in just as much need as the tax collector. Even the world would never guess it. The tax collector who has wasted his life needs exactly what the religious elite also needs. And the sad thing is the Pharisee doesn't get it, does he? He looks inward, he looks in the mirror, and he believes that what he has done in this life is actually good enough for his God. But there will come a day when all sinful people, just like me, will stand before a holy, perfect, wonderful, massive God. And our goodness will be nothing more than filthy, filthy rags in the light of his glory. You see, what Jesus is saying is that nothing we could ever do can make us right with God. The gap is too large. We're too sinful. God is too holy. But don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. There is hope. Because Jesus, Jesus actually came to live that perfect life that you could not live. All the righteousness that you cannot earn, he's offering his to you. When he hung on the cross, he was paying the penalty for your sin. Yes, that is forgiveness, but there is more. Jesus, as he poured out his blood, wanted you to have it. He wanted you to be counted as a perfect son and daughter of the king. He gave you his place. And with open arms... All you need to do is recognize your need for him and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I promise you that when we say this, he will deliver. 
with more sweet mercy than you and I can ever imagine. And so I ask again, like we asked at the beginning, when you stand before God, what is it that you're going to say? I beg you guys with me, with me, who needs this message as much as anybody in this crowd, to turn away from being like this Pharisee who measures up all of our good and compares it to our bad, who measures up all of our good and compares it to the person next to us, and take a lesson from this pathetic, sinful, broken, confused, desperate tax collector. Would you stop looking side to side, comparing yourselves horizontally, and building ourselves up that way, and would we simply take our eyes off of ourselves and look to the cross, where Jesus is saying, what are you doing? Why are you putting these burdens on you? Why are you living by the law still trying to prove yourself as if you could prove yourself? And would you just open up your arms and accept the free gift of God in Jesus Christ tonight? Would you do this? Would you do this tonight? Would tonight be the night? Guys, we have been praying for this many people to come tonight, not because we give a rip about numbers. No, numbers are scary these days. You don't want a lot of numbers. But we need to make this appeal to as many people in this city as possible because Jesus loves you so, so much. And there was enough blood on that cross to cover every single one of us tonight. And he is calling you to stop living a life of performance and impressing yourself and impressing your family and impressing everybody in this world and just to accept the gift of God that God looks at you and says, yes, I love you, I approve of you, and I cannot wait to welcome you home someday. And so as the band comes back up, guys, we're going to close the night with a little more singing. We're going to be thankful to God that we have the opportunity to do exactly what this tax collector did. That it says he went down to his house justified. Do you notice he did nothing? He did nothing except believe. And I can only imagine that walk from the temple to his house, which was full of anger and tears and sadness on the way, was probably accompanied with a soft, quiet smile on the way home. And I don't know what your drive out to Tiffin, the beautiful land of Tiffin, was like tonight. But I promise you that you can leave here made right with your God by simply saying, have mercy on me, God. I am a sinner. I have fallen short. And I believe that you want to bring me into your family. Guys, this is what we do every week. We sit under this good news. We let it wash over us for the first time we heard it to the millionth time we heard it. And it never gets old. Pray with me. God, we are thankful. We are thankful to be here. Even if it was like pulling teeth to get some of us here, there was a, a cloud of fear that we had, to, we had to pull ourselves through just to get here. You have us all here for a reason. You have me up here for a reason so that I can read these words and be transformed. That we can hear these words and also be transformed. That we can just laugh tonight that we can just throw the worries of the world away with courage and laugh because our God is holding us. God, would you implore people to come to yourself tonight? Would you beckon people to come up tonight 
to find a connection group and to find that leader tonight and tell them, hey, I don't know what it's like to follow Jesus. I'm starting tonight. Let's do this together. I pray for salvation. I pray for joy. I pray for bravery. And ultimately, God, I pray that you would smile upon us as we worship you as your children.